Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The Kingdom of Bahrain is the smallest country in the Middle East. It is an island in the Persian Gulf connected to Saudi Arabia by a causeway, and it is home to a very large U.S. naval base. Bahrain is also in the midst of a years-long crackdown in which political opposition figures, human rights defenders, journalists, and bloggers have been languishing in jail. And it was in this context that last month, Bahrain held elections that were a total sham, according to my guest today, Brian Dooley. Brian Dooley is a senior advisor at Human Rights First, and as he explains, the politics and international relations of Bahrain can teach us a lot about broader trends in the Middle East. In our conversation, we discuss why these recent elections in Bahrain matter and what the international community can do to restore a semblance of representative democracy to Bahrain and why what happens in Bahrain matters in the Middle East and around the world. I found this conversation to be a useful discussion about a topic and an issue, you know, democracy and the retreat of democracy in Bahrain that does not get the kind of attention it deserves, but uh, I'm glad to shine a spotlight on it. Brian Dooley also recently wrote a policy brief for the Project on Middle East Democracy about this very issue, and I'll post a link to his article on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And as always, a big thank you to those of you who are premium subscribers and have become premium subscribers to the show recently and have unlocked a host of rewards, including bonus episodes and my daily global news clip service. To learn more about these rewards that you unlock by becoming a premium subscriber, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. And again, feel free to email me anytime using the contact button on the homepage. Love hearing from you guys. All right, now here is my conversation with Brian Dooley from Human Rights First. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Bahrain is the smallest country in the Middle East. It's just off the coast of uh, of Saudi Arabia, and it sits really between Saudi Arabia and Iran on that Strait of uh, Hormuz, which makes it uh, immediately then in a a difficult, sensitive, politically uh, region. Uh, it has about a million and a half people who live there, although um, half of those or more are actually not native Bahrainis. They are people who are from overseas or working there for one reason or another. A lot of domestic workers, a lot of laborers, and then at the other end of the social scale, you have a lot of people working there in finance and, and banking. Um, it's 
always been a, a slight oddity. Um, it's as I say, it's sandwiched really between between Saudi and Iran. But the other big powerful neighbour in the region, its other big powerful neighbour is the uh, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And for a long time, really for generations, um, Bahrain has at least had a reputation for being slightly more liberal uh, than its other Gulf counterparts. Uh, sort of a petri dish, if you like, where some or the bigger players could see how liberalization might work, how limited political reform might work, how a certain degree of religious pluralism might work. And so it's been uh, this sort of hotbed uh, for some time uh, of sort of experimenting of, you know, what would it look like in this context, in this in this region uh, for one of the the smallest, in fact, the smallest Gulf states to uh, to have a little degree of uh, political inclusiveness. And so they've had a parliament that for a time also included parties from its large uh, Shia minority as well, correct? In fact, the, the, the Shia population there is the majority, again, which also sets it apart from the other Gulf states. Uh, the other Gulf states are, have a majority Sunni population. Bahrain's uh, population is actually majority uh, Shia, but was it about like what, like sixty percent or so, or more? Yeah, it's hard to know because they they, they won't do a census. But we, somewhere between sixty and seventy percent, sixty five ish percent is generally thought of as being about a sensible guesstimate for the the Shia to Sunni population there. But the Sunnis uh, are are the ones who have typically and historically held the bulk of of wealth and and power in the country, correct? Yeah, completely. I mean, the the country really, despite the elections. Uh, is really run by a, a ruling family and their cronies, um, all of whom are, are Sunnis. They're, they're a Sunni family backed by a powerful political Sunni elite. And so there's always been that fault line in Bahrain's politics too, where you really, if you talk about it in sectarian terms, and, and that's certainly not the only way to talk about it, but if you talk about it, characterize it in by a sectarian nature, then you have a minority Sunni uh, elite ruling over a majority Shia population. That's right. And when did Bahrain become host to a large U.S. naval base? And it's, you know, one of the, the sort of key strategic um, naval bases in the world for, for the United States for the geographic reasons you uh, discussed earlier, sitting directly um, in the, the, the Strait of Hormuz. That's right. And, and that's really a major part of the sensitivity about what happens in Bahrain. Uh, despite its size, it has this really disproportionate political influence because uh, the U.S. has for ge generations now, back to the 70s, had a sizable um, military base there, which has grown and grown and grown. Now it's home to the, the Fifth Fleet. The U.K. has just decided uh, to sink uh, also a, a large military base investment there in Bahrain. And so the stakes for for the U.S. and the U.K., are very high should something go wrong in Bahrain, should uh, you know, large-scale instability uh, hit Bahrain for whatever reason. And so there are close eyes um, from the West on what's happening in, in Bahrain because really the, those powerful allies can't afford something to go disastrously wrong. And so it is a very small country, as you said, yet um, because of its strategic location and because of its alliances with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and because of its relative wealth, um, you know, it is a significant country and a geopolitically strategic and an important country in in the world, frankly. 
Yeah, although actually it's not that rich. Uh, it really depends um, for its wealth on Saudi and the uh, and the Emirates, and it, it doesn't uh, produce its own oil. It sort of has a lease arrangement um, with uh, Saudi Arabia, and it, its its fiscal deficit uh, is really heading towards a pretty disastrous place. It's running a huge public debt. The IMF says that for uh, Bahrain to break even. Um, the oil price, it refines oil, the oil price uh, has to be uh, around $100 a barrel, 110 And for some time now, it's been way below that. This week, it's around $50. Yeah. So Bahrain is, is looking more and more, actually, to its powerful neighbors to, to bail it out. Uh, and in fact, uh, last month, there was a, a $10 billion package put together by, by its powerful neighbors, rich neighbors. And Saudi and the Emirates uh, to bail it out. So it's uh, it's not that rich, um, and certainly the the government has mismanaged the economy, not least in terms of rooting out corruption. Uh, so it, it 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 although it's in the Gulf, although it has you know that that sort of petrodollar economy, it's um, it's not a wealthy place. And as you said, it seems pretty much entirely dependent or significantly dependent on Saudi Arabia and the UAE, its wealthier, larger neighbors to prop it up both economically, but also um, through security guarantees as as well. And um, so it's in that context that I wanted to have you discuss the recent elections in, in Bahrain, which uh, were a, sort of a complete sham. And why were these elections held? And why were they a sham? And why does it matter that they were uh, such a, a, a sort of false elections? Well, Bahrain's reputation, again, is, you know, the, the, the least worst of, of, of the Gulf countries in terms of oppression. Um, a place where it's only one of two Gulf countries where, you know, there are some sort of elections, although I think Kuwait's actually a bit more meaningful. Um, and so the... The election is really just part of this this PR push, this continued PR push for for the Bahraini government to pretend that is in any real sense a constitutional monarchy. I mean, Britain technically is a constitutional monarchy in that you know it has a, a fully functioning parliament and a head of state, which is a monarch. Um, but in Bahrain, really, the monarch is the is the most powerful political figure. Uh, the cabinet is made up um, of appointees by the king. Um, usually around half of the cabinet are actually direct uh, members of his family. Uh, his uncle has been the unelected prime minister uh, of Bahrain since the early 70s, the longest serving prime minister uh, in the world, never been elected. And so these parliamentary elections really are, are cosmetic. Uh, they will elect 40 people to sit in the lower chamber um, of Bahrain's parliament, the 40 members of the upper chamber also directly appointed by the king. Uh, and they'll talk about this and that a little bit, but they have no power in terms of um, deciding who's in the cabinet, removing cabinet members. Uh, they can't really uh, bring legislation to a vote. Uh, and so they walk around you know, with the title of member of parliament, but it's pretty empty and meaningless. And, and really, it's f the function of the elections is for Bahrain to pretend to anybody gullible enough um, that they're having some sort of democracy. And, and reading your analysis of these elections, it seems that um, the, sort of the big outcome of these elections was to disenfranchise the large Shia majority. Um, 
from even participating in elections to create a parliament that, as you said, is is sort of powerless anyway. So why is it a big deal that sort of Shia have been excluded from the, the political system in Bahrain? Right. So I, I wrote an analysis, you're right, for, uh, for POMED, uh, Project on Middle East Democracy. And in that, I, I lay out why it, it matters. So um, a couple of election cycles ago, elections are held every four years, uh, the the opposition parties, uh, not all of whom are Shia, but overwhelmingly are Shia, um, used to run candidates. And of course, the seats, even for this for this sort of make up parliament, um, they were gerrymandered so that although you had a majority Shia population, really the Shia constituents could only ever elect 18 um, of the 40 seats. But nonetheless, there was a time when there would be up to that many uh, opposition MPs. Again, their their power was almost none, uh, but it was a way for uh, many of the population to to be able to at least express and air grievances. Mm-hmm. Now we've seen over the last seven or eight years since there were major protests against the government, which were violently cracked down on uh, in 2011. One by one, really, these avenues of peaceful dissent have been shut down. The only uh, independent newspaper was forced to close down last year. Human rights activists, civil societies have all been either silenced by pushed into exile or pushed into jail. And over the last year and a half or so, the the opposition societies, they're not actually even allowed to be called parties, they have to be called opposition groups or societies, um, have been closed down, their leaders put in jail. And in fact, not only uh, were they not allowed to run in the elections, Anybody who'd ever been a member of one of these wasn't allowed to run in the election. So part of the this ongoing, ever-increasing repression was to close down that peaceful opposition um, voice. And, and so you basically have a, the majority of the population who experience various forms of, of disenfranchisement and in some cases probably discrimination and, you know, the, the more prominent of whom have, you know, been beaten, tortured, arrested, uh, forced into exile um, with no real sort of valve, no way of expressing uh, their dissent. And so the concern is without these kind of peaceful forms that, um, you know, unrest may may come to this sort of vital U.S. ally. Exactly. I, mean, I think it was President Kennedy who said something like, you know, the, the more you make peaceful evolution impossible, you make violent revolution inevitable. Something along those lines is really are our concern that if you shut off all other avenues for people to air their criticism. If you if you criticise the uh, the ruling family on on social media, uh, you get jailed. If you try to organise a protest, you get jailed. Uh, if you try, no, to I've had a friend who uh, was a journalist who went there and you know was arrested. Um, actually, she's been on this podcast. She told her story about getting uh, arrested. Anna Therese Day is her name. Uh, about getting arrested in in, in Bahrain uh, four years ago, three or three or four years ago, and, just and for the crime of of doing journalism. Right. And seven or eight years ago, you know, international human rights organizations like my own used to be able to go into Bahrain um, and meet human rights activists. Those human rights activists, by and large, now are all in prison and we uh, are prevented from entering Bahrain. I tried to go in April this year and and was held at the airport for uh, 24, 25 hours. I mean, the, the human rights activists are not allowed out of the country to tell their story at the UN or elsewhere, at the US Congress elsewhere. Uh, and international human rights organizations are not allowed in. And so, yeah, the, the, the fear is if you 
suffocate and you choke off all um, peaceful avenues of dissent, then some people, of course, will, will just give up, be intimidated into silence. But there are others who will, uh, the fear is then others will turn to violent forms of, of dissent as, as the only way uh, to express their grievances. And, and that's the problem. I mean, the, the, the ruling family in Bahrain clearly uh, wants stability in the country. Um, and so does everybody else. But I think the argument is, a, is about how you reach stability. Um, we would say that you know, a stability through repression can be one, but it's very temporary. I mean, we saw what happened in 2011 with, you know, with, with Libya and Syria and Egypt and almost Bahrain itself. Yeah, well, I, actually, I, I wanted to talk about, about Bahrain's 2011 Arab Spring uh, experience because it seems that the repression following Bahrain's botched Arab Spring is is something um, that has you know definitely sort of gotten worse. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happened during those protests and how Saudi Arabia was called to intervene and and quash those those protests and the repression that's been sort of ever growing growing ever steadier and ever more intense since then. So, so inspired really by uh, what was happening in uh, in Tunisia and especially Egypt, uh, Bahraini protesters called uh, for demonstrations on February the fourteenth, which is Bahraini National Day. Um, and much to their surprise, uh, I mean, tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people came out to protest. And I think it's worth remembering that those early protests were not about sectarianism. These weren't these weren't Shia driven protests. These were people, Sunni and Shia, who were complaining about a range of grievances, including corruption in the government, which I think if you look at some of the other uprisings in the in the region, you'll, you'll find corruption at the heart of those, too. Um, but anyway, what happened was the there was initially a violent response from the government. Protesters were killed. And then there was a sort of an uneasy period of calm for about a month. But during that month, while negotiations were happening between government representatives and, and representatives of the of the protests and the political opposition, um, views on both sides, I think, I think hardened uh, and. By the middle of March, Saudi Arabia was really just fed up and, and decided that, you know, it, it couldn't allow um, these large scale, scale protests to go on on its doorstep because who knows where that contagion is going to lead. Right. So it sort of called time on the negotiations uh, and just sent in um, uh, troops, uh, as did the Emirates. Uh, which really gave the signal to the local Bahraini security forces to run amok, basically. I mean, they, they rounded up thousands of people. Um, some of you may remember the, some of the bigger cases were you know, dozens of medics who had treated injured protesters themselves were then, were then arrested and, and tortured and put in crazy military trials and given long sentences and so on. Um, the response to that internationally then was um, relatively strong. Uh, you know, even even the UK and the US started to get uncomfortable about the the way that the the um, the process had been put down so brutally. And so, towards the end of 2011 and early 2012, there were all sorts of promises made by the Bahraini government. They brought in an independent panel of uh, international lawyers to recommend. You know, this is the way you should reform. They promised to do it, and then and then just didn't. Mm. Uh, and partly they didn't because the US and the UK and some of the other big players, but notably those, 
um, really decided that they had bigger things to worry about. And when they took the pressure off of uh, the Bahraini government, it went not just back to business as usual, but actually back to, to business far worse than it had been before in many ways. So, uh, so even as it seems the, the Bahraini government was increasing their repression following the failed Arab Spring, the U.S. government, in the, this case the Obama administration, didn't really do much to uh, support Bahraini uh, you know, political activists and rather sort of doubled down on their support of the Bahraini government? Right. The, the, uh, the Obama administration really said, um, some fairly inconsistent and contradictory things. Uh, it imposed um, an arms uh, blockade and a, a, a ban on arms sales to Bahrain military, and then and then lifted that, even though there really hadn't been much uh, human rights progress. Uh, it made a fuss about some things, but but generally the signal was, you know, if uh, if the Bahrainis decide to imprison their human rights activists, there isn't that much. Um, that the U.S. administration is going to do about it. And remember, of course, during the Obama administration, you know, one of the big prizes for it was to secure the uh, the Iran deal. And so it needed to keep not so much Bahrain is a sort of a small fish in this context, but it needed to keep Saudi and, and the Emiratis on side for that. And of course, it needed it felt it needed to sell uh, Saudi a lot of arms. And during the Obama administration, um, the the. Uh, amount of arms sales to uh, to Saudi increased dramatically over what it had been before. So there were all these other considerations which meant that the, the poor old Bahrain, or at least the poor old opposition in Bahrain, really got neglected and uh, and sort of overridden by these other, you know, bigger concerns. So, so basically, be, you know, be, despite the fact that Bahrain has this, this um, big naval base, really sort of U.S. policy to Bahrain kind of flows via Riyadh, via, via Saudi Arabia, and that's the bigger concern. And so to the extent that Saudi Arabia is concerned about things in Bahrain, that's where sort of the U.S. would engage. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, Saudi is always, you know, the, <laughs> the not-so-quiet elephant in the room, and more and more so are the Emiratis too. And and now over the last few weeks, I think what's been very frustrating is that those doors have opened, I think, a little bit in Washington, which had been previously closed in terms of questioning the U.S.-Saudi relationship or or even the U.S.-Emirati relationship. You know, the, the two cases of the, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and the uh, jailing and since release of the British academic uh, Matthew Hedges of raised questions in Washington I hadn't heard for for you know, in the previous five or six and, years. Of, and the, the UAE case, just, just to explain, is, yeah. is the case of a, a British academic who was arrested and detained for many months in the UAE, uh, ostensibly just for conducting his, his research. And, but but it, he was released just a few days before recording this episode. Right, after having, the week before, been sentenced to life in prison. Yeah. Um, and, and so here you get the, you get the two sides of you know this this dreadfully repressive regime, which obviously didn't give them a fair trial, forced confession, all that. Uh, and yet, when the international community wants to make an outcry, it can have an effect. It can get the guy released. And when the so, international mm -hmm. community decides it wants to make a fuss about Jamal Khashoggi, then we're going to see some, at least potentially, some movement. Um, but the you know the international community has not made a commensurate fuss about say. Um, was it Nabil uh, Nabil in, in Nabil Reza. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah, again, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, and and these other dissidents and and bloggers and journalists who've been arrested in in Bahrain. C can I ask? Um, 
how has U.S. policy towards Bahrain changed under the, the Trump administration? Or um, has I, it? it I, I'd say it's got a little more honest um, in that the Obama administration sold um, billions of dollars worth of weapons to uh, to Saudi uh, and yet tried to um, talk out another side of its mouth and talk about how it was concerned so much about uh, human rights in Bahrain. On and off it did that. Uh, the Trump administration doesn't pretend to care at all. Uh, there are a couple of prisoners, including Nabil Rajab and the head of the opposition, uh, Ali Salman, uh, that the Trump administration has called for their release, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but but generally, I don't think anyone, if they were under any misapprehension before, that really Washington was going to use its influence um, to try and force or at least urge the Bahraini ruling family to reform. Um, the Obama administration sort of talked about doing that, but never really did it. The Trump administration isn't even talking about doing that. So so what, you know, given um, the fact of the Trump administration, what can um, the US or, or other um, international uh, allies and partners do to press for real reform, real democratic reform in Bahrain, or at least an end to the brutal repression? I think some of the frustration that, that those of us who've been arguing this in, in London and Washington and elsewhere, Brussels over the years, is that when you when you talk to a well-informed, smart government official from any of those places, they will get it. I mean, they, they will agree uh, at least to some extent, that you know this this repressive approach is very dangerous. Uh, you know, you may be able to keep a lid on things for a while, but then but then the lid is going to explode off. You know, as we saw in 2011 in so many places. And so the logic of our argument, I think, is pretty much accepted. But the reality for the government official is, you know, unless that's going to blow over, unless it's going to blow up and explode in the next sort of six or twelve months or two years, then we could probably keep things going as they are. So it's it's a very myopic outlook from from the UK and the US, um, which I think everybody more or less agrees you know, is unsustainable. And so when you argue with them, look, just try and make things a little less worse. You know, let's have the opposition out of prison. Let's have basic stuff. Let's have some human rights activists, any of the human rights activists who are put in prison. Uh, out anybody who's given an unfair trial out this is basic sort of stuff um, again it's it's hard for them to argue against that and but what happens is that it gets overridden again by these either real or imaginary concerns about the need not to upset the allies there because they're part of you know the alliance against Iran um, we need their oil uh, we can't we can't afford any more disruption in the region. I mean, much of the logic, I have to say, sounds like a sort of a 1970s, 1980s Cold War Washington logic where, you know, it's okay to, to back, you know, Pinochet or the Shah of Iran or apartheid South Africa. Yes, it's embarrassing for us to be friends with them, but basically in the end, they're on our side against against the real enemy. And so that, that sort of very simplistic um, depressing level of diplomacy is is still what's running the show in in, in Washington and London. Uh, well, Brian, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. And I hope one day you're able to return to to Bahrain. Thank you, Adla. I'm going to keep trying. All right. Thanks very much for this chance to talk. It's been uh, yeah. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it a lot. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Brian. That was very helpful. And uh, I'll post a, a link to my conversation with my friend Anna Therese Day, uh, the journalist who was arrested in Bahrain a, a few years ago for you know, just doing journalism about political movements there. It's a, a good story she tells and, and uh, uh, an enlightening one, I, I think. All right. We'll see you soon. And don't forget to sign up to become a premium subscriber and support the show. I, I so appreciate your support. Thank you so much. You're helping to make this podcast that shines a spotlight on underreported stories, a sustainable media enterprise, of which there are sadly few uh, around the world. But you know, I'm hoping to, to make this one of them. So I so appreciate your support. All right. See you next time. Bye.